0: So just over 74 years ago, Eisenhower was uh, walking through uh, the heart of of Holocaust camps, just about to liberate many men and women who had been oppressed uh, under the hands of Hitler and his regime. Uh, Now winning the war, Hitler uh, is, is no more, and Eisenhower is going to the camp. And some historians would say that Eisenhower would say these words, Uh, For the very first time in my life, and I never thought I would say this, I'm actually ashamed of my German last name. As he walked through the camps and those Holocaust survivors, what he saw was unrecognizable. He saw men that literally had uh, been there for years at the hands of oppression. And uh, many of them were just mere bags of bones. Deceased bodies all around, literally eating food that even animals wouldn't eat. Uh, They had been ravaged and starved. Uh, Many of the men in the camp hadn't shaved in four or or almost five years. Uh, As he walked through that and he began to see something, it was said that oftentimes some of those that had been oppressed were even very skeptical to even approach the Americans as they walked through because of the fear uh, that they would be oppressed again at the hands of men. But yet one by one, men would step up and ask, is there any way that I could clean just the feces off of me or the, the, the blood and some of the muck and the, the junk off? Could we just have a hot shower? Could we just have something to eat? Hey, could, could I just have something new besides these pajamas that I have to wear? And they would begin to have the confidence and the courage to approach these Americans. And ultimately, that was uh, probably one of the, the greatest marks of, of winning the war, was that you were able to take oppressed men and you were to set them free. Now here's what I want you to think of is this, is that when you think about liberation, when you think about making oppressed men free, what I want you to realize is that the blessing was not to take uh, a handful of pajamas that these men had been wearing for the last three or four or five years and just to clean them. It wasn't, it wasn't just to hey, let me throw those in the washer and let's put those back on. But it was to give them a, a new liberation, to give them entirely new clothes, to give them warm beds, hot showers, and brand new meals. The goal was, in a sense, to give them everything new. And I, I want you to realize is that when we think about liberation, whether it be a Holocaust camp or we think the liberation of someone who was once lost and is now found, what we want to think is completely new. And ultimately, that's what Paul is going to share with us uh, and share to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4 is the liberation of man and what that looks like and what it is that we would actually be liberated from. And so we're going to be diving in uh, to Ephesians chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, we encourage you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to bless you one. You can go to Connection Point on either of our campuses. As we get going, uh, we want to just welcome those that are joining us online. And we also want to welcome those in Edgewood that are joining us in this very moment. And here's what we did in the first service, and we want to do it again in the second. Is uh, Will's Point. Uh, we want to just give Edgewood a shout out. So let them hear you real quick. Uh, they know that you, they're, they're with us. Let's go. so we're excited about Edgewood. We're also excited that Edgewood is getting resources they need. We think in just the next couple of months, they're going to be in a new facility, a building where they're not faithfully starting at 5:45 or 6 a.m. setting up and tearing down. And I just want you to realize, uh, and so I want to say it uh, in front of you in Will's point, um, can I just tell you that we have a cakewalk when it comes to this thing we call church. Um, There are men and women who faithfully for over three years are setting up. They start before many of us even get out of our dreaming. And they set up and they tear down. And they've done that faithfully for a handful of people in Van Zandt County. Uh, so they could come to know Jesus, follow him obediently, and we can't wait to get them in their new building. It's happening, and uh, we're proud of Edgewood, and we're grateful for what the Lord's doing there. Um, So let's dive in, Ephesians chapter 4. The first three chapters, Paul gives incredible theological implications. Uh, He just tells us who we are apart from God, ultimately, that it's because of his son Jesus that we can come to the knowledge of God, that we can grow in the surpassing knowledge of the faithful one, uh, that we can be made alive, Ephesians 2, Christ, that it's not the result of our works, but ultimately it's because of the good, benevolent God we serve, that he would send his son Jesus, uh, that though know, he was oppressed, he would come innocent. Uh, would be innocent on our behalf, perfect in every way, would die at the hands of criminals, a a sinner's death for us, that we might be justified, made alive in Christ, that we could grow in him. Uh, Ephesians 3, we we just see uh, an incredible uh, picture of what it looks like to grow up and to be conformed in Christ and to love one another, encourage one another, that God would take two different Groups of people, Jews and Gentiles alike. And he said, I would make them all uh, yoked together under the banner of Christ. And then last, a couple of weeks, we finally got into chapter uh, four. And so once you get into chapter four, uh, you begin the heart of what we would call application. And so the first three chapters are theological frameworks. There's not a single prohibition. There's not a single command. It's just here's who God is, here's who you are, and here's what you should do about it. And then ultimately, once you get to chapter four, uh, it starts with, hey, we should be unified in in and under Christ. And that ultimately that our goal should be to love and be uh, faithful to stewarding the gospel. And the way we do that best is not through ministries or what we offer in our churches, but the way that we love one another. That our unity is the prized possession of God's church. That at the end of the day, it's not about re-engaged ministry. It's not about skate parties, kids' ministries. It's not about overnight stays or um, any of those other things. It's not about anything we do outside of loving one another well being careful not to gossip, to slander, uh, to backbite, to be malicious with our words, with our actions. At the end of the day, the most glorious thing the church has, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, is unity. And then from unity, we grow up into maturity. As we begin to mature, we begin to love one another well. And as we uh, begin to do that, uh, we become his people. And so that's kind of the idea. And then you get to verses 17 through 24. Uh, and, and as a result of being God's people and being equipped by the leaders of the church, growing up and, and being mature, you get to the place where you begin to see what God wants to do. And that is to liberate. He wants to make the old man free. Uh, He doesn't want us to somehow turn over a a new leaf or somehow to uh, come to a place and go, hey, I'm going to start working on myself and I'm going to try to try to work some things out myself? He goes, no, no, I want to make you totally new. And that's what he begins with in Ephesians chapter 4, 17 and 24. And he's going to talk to us about this challenge we have, which is this thing called futility. And so here's what he says to to the people in Ephesus living in a pagan culture. In verse 17 of Ephesians 4, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, what's interesting about this is that he's not writing this letter uh, to a, a bunch of people who are Jewish people in the pagan culture. What he's writing this to are a bunch of people who are Gentiles in a pagan culture who have come to faith in the knowledge and the work of Jesus in their life. And so what he does is he goes, hey, I want you Gentiles to no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So what he's just kind of doing there, he's going, hey, listen, I know who you are, and I know what God's called you from, and so don't go back to where he's brought you from. At the end of the day, he has liberated you. He has cleaned you up. He has clothed you in Christ. He has made you a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Now walk in a manner, as Paul would say in Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, uh, all the way throughout verse 4, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called. So he goes, you've been liberated, you've been set free, don't forget that. Don't go back to what your brothers and your sisters and your mamas and your daughters are doing. Because you are free. And you're free, and it says, of the futility of which you're, you've played out in your mind. And that word futility there um, is, the, is the word in the Greek, matalotes, which literally means a depraved mind. Uh, it's best explained in, in Romans chapter 1 and, and kind of this way. Paul writes to the Romans, and um, he says this beginning in verse really. Uh, 21. He goes, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise, but instead they became fools. They exchanged the glory of a mortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, and animals, and creeping things. And so God gave them over the lust of their hearts, the impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, and they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So the idea, he goes, well, foolishness is not knowing that there, that there is a God and, and, and just choosing not to follow him. He goes, no, it's exchanging the truth of God for a lie completely. And so the idea is, he goes, you just become futile in your thinking. You become debased, depraved in your mind. So think about this. In the original order of creation, if you go all the way back with me to Genesis chapter 3, here's how God established it. God, the creator of all things, entered into space and time, created everything that we see and know, Colossians 1. He even created things that we see and or things that we don't see and we don't know. Everything was created by God for him under the banner of Jesus. Then on the sixth day, after he created all the living creatures that walk and move and fly around the earth, he goes, I'm creating mankind in my image. We are the vice regent of God. We are his next supreme in charge. And then he says something to us. He goes, you are my child created in my image, and now you are to multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. You're to rule over it. You are the vice regent. You are in complete charge. Name everything. Enjoy all of it. Then he creates woman. And then Here's what he does. He goes, it should be God, it should be man, and then ultimately it should be all the living creatures. And he goes, you're to rule over them and subdue them. Now listen, here's what feudal thinking does. Feudal thinking reverses it. It puts all the created things, then it takes man, and then somehow God filters all the way down to the bottom. And so instead of God being worshipped and supreme, and then us being his servants, we flip it. And so we put God at the bottom, we're not worried about him, and futility of our thinking exchanges the glory of God for a lie. And we think, oh, it's all the things that we think are important. And so there's a myriad of things that a man will do in order to worship. One of the most worshiped things that a man has is a woman, a created thing. And you go, oh, that explains a lot. And then from woman, if it's not a woman that satisfies, then guess what? They'll go to any other created thing that fulfills. And we'll go to anything other than the one who is supreme. That's futility. And so Paul goes, don't do as the Gentiles do. It's futile. Your minds are devoid. They're perverse. They're depraved. And then he says, here's what happens. And in verses 18 all the way really through 19, on two simple verses, he's going to lay out all of the problems that a man has. And, And when I say a man, I'm talking about anthropos, male and female. All of mankind has this problem. He goes, they are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart they become callous, and they have given themselves over to sensuality. To, they're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And so right there, he lists out a handful of things. In verse 18, he goes, There's, we have darkened hearts. And now when you think about darkened hearts there, that word really um, is, in a sense, um, this Greek word. It's, it's called skuto, which literally means... Um, darkened, covered. It's as if you can't see. It's like your your eyes are blind. 2 Corinthians four four. Um, we know that the enemy, the adversary, Satan, he, he blinds the heart of unbelievers. That's where he wants us to stay. He wants our hearts to be darkened, if that makes sense. Uh, it says uh, that we also become to live a life of really, um, of not just darkened hearts, but hardened hearts. That we, uh, as we become heart then we become calloused. And so that idea there and that word is literally just to be calloused. Now, I don't know about you, but some of you, you work outside. Uh, you're often out, out I'm in an office, so I don't have this, but you have calloused hands. I remember in high school, there was a time way back when in high school, in the early years of college, I used to work out all the time. My hands were always calloused. But I made a promise long ago that I'm never going to work out again. And so my, my hands are soft. <laughs> Um, and so I'm not doing it. only thing I'm working out is my salvation with fear and trembling. Everything else is my... This God bod is just... I mean, it's about eating well, okay? Um, and so so you're like, oh, okay. And there's a handful of you that you're going to walk out of this place. You're like, oh, yeah, I mean, you got soft hands. And I'm going to say, well, you got, a, you got a hard heart. And so it's fine. We'll just... <laughs> I'd rather have soft, you know, soft hands and a soft heart than, than hard hands and a hard heart. And so at the end of the day, um, that's what he's talking about, though. He goes, it's a calloused heart. And when you look around, you, you become more desensitized and more callous to the things around you. And the longer that you live in the dark, the, the more susceptible that you are for callousness to build up on your heart. And what happens is, is that you just don't honestly, if, you, if you're honest with yourself, you just don't care about the, the things that God cares about. You're not compassionate where, the, where God is compassionate. Uh, you seem to be firm where God's not firm. You seem to be flexible where God's not flexible. And at the end of the day, you're just becoming callous. And then it's not just callousness, but he says also there in verse 18 that it's as a result of ignorance that brings about callousness. And so our ignorance is the idea of just moral blindness. The best way I can explain it to you in our society is this thing called relativism. And relativism is simply this that happens every day in our time, and that is everything is relative. Meaning Is there really truth? That's one of the life's greatest questions. Is there really truth? Can anything really be defined by an absolute? And so for me, I happen to believe, yes, there are absolutes and there is a moral baseline of truth. But for many of us in this room, we contemplate, is there truth? for many of our peers out in society our coworkers our friends our sons our daughters they would say there is no such thing as truth truth is as i make it i get to decide and discern what truth is and that's futility it leads to to darkness callousness and ignorance and ignorance is this, is that I am supreme, I am the God of my life, and I'll order my life however I like. When you are that God, your life will have no order but mere chaos. And the reason why is because God says you are firm on things I'm not firm and flexible in areas I'm not flexible. At the end of the day, there is truth. You have to rightly divide it. Those that Paul's talking about with feudal minds, darkened hearts, ignorance, he goes... The challenge is, is that you're morally blind. You don't stand up to the things you should stand up to. And you, you lay over when you, when you should stand up. At the same time, you find yourself standing up on moral issues that don't matter when at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. And so think about the American church. The American church have become cowards in standing up to the truth of doctrinal things that God cares about in our society. At the same time, we've become firm and jerks in our own bodies arguing about things that God doesn't care about. And that's what's called dissension and faction and quarrels. And the reason why is because it ultimately begins with hardened hearts and selfishness, deceitful schemes. It's hardened darkened, ignorant hearts, which lead to, Paul says, it it goes further than that. They have not just become callous, but they've also given themselves over to sensuality. And the idea of sensuality there uh, is this Greek word, which really probably the better idea of that is unbridled lust. So think of someone who is unbridled, that, that, that they are not tamed. At the end of the day, they just do what they want. It's called licentiousness. Licentiousness is this, is that I have a license to sin. And when you are relative to your truth you believe what you want to believe I believe what I want to believe as long as we don't co-mingle and as long as we don't have to speak too much into each other's life as long as we can pat each other on the back and say it's okay to do what you do as long as you let me do what I want to do it's becoming an unbridled lust there is no end to the means and the manner in which someone will produce a way to sin. So think unbridled less licentiousness. So I'm always amazed that in our day and time, what teens will explore now. I mean, used to back when we were teens, like we thought we were rebellious because we painted something up, right? Uh, now rebellious is different. We're always looking for new forms and new ways to do evil. That's licentiousness. It's unbridled lust. It's sensuality. That's what he's talking about. He goes, when you are futile in your mind, he goes, you have a dark heart, a calloused heart, an ignorant heart, and you are constantly looking for new ways to, in the event, more ways of sin. I don't know about you, but I I can think over the last couple of years, some of the challenges that I've seen roll through social media. Hey, don't let your kids eat Tide Pods or something like that, Right? The challenge, you're like, and here's here's what that is. It's it's ignorance. And in our ignorance, we will find a new means of establishing a sin base to fill something in our heart that is void. Does that make sense? The Tide Pod is not your challenge. The challenge is an unbridled heart. It's a heart that's lost in darkness. It's become calloused over time. It's a heart that needs to be softened towards the things of God. It's futile thinking. That's what he's talking about. Uh, And then he says, and they have become greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And what's interesting is the very first time you read that, you'll make a note. You're like, oh, and they're greedy. That's not what it says. It says they've become greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And what he's saying there, he goes, they're coveting new means of doing impurity. He goes, so it's one thing to covet money, and that happens, and I'm sure it was happening. It's one thing to be greedy, and it happened, and I'm sure it was happening. But he goes, here's what you need to know. In this culture, with the depravity going around with a goddess um, that's actually in the epicenter of the heart of Ephesus, there's a huge temple to Diana or to Artemis. They had sensuality, and they had all the things. They were inventing new forms of doing evil. And he goes, they even coveted new ways to do that. He goes, it's futile. And the, the, probably the biggest deal is when you have a darkened, calloused, futile, ignorant heart, the biggest challenge is, is that you need to know is that we're alienated from God. He says that in verse 18. That's the biggest challenge. You're alienated. You're estranged. So what I, I want you to realize is this, is that you cannot claim to love God and have a calloused, ignorant, foolish heart over time consistently. Because if you are, what you need to know is that we are alienated from the God who loves us. Because as we walk with him in a manner worthy of the call which we've been called, then we grow up in our salvation, we work it out with fear and trembling, and we begin to be God's people, his his members, the partakers of his divine excellencies. We get to come to the table of the Lord and taste and see that he's good. We get to be the people he's called us to be, a light in the darkness. That's what we should be doing. But maybe you're here and you go, that sounds like me, or it sounds like somebody I know. My heart is hardened. I feel like I'm in the dark. I feel like I'm ignorant to the things of God. I feel like I'm unbridled. I feel like that I'm in love with everything in our society. I feel like I'm confused. I feel like I'm impure. I'm unclean. I'm I'm looking for something to fill the void. Then he says, but there is hope. And in verse 20, after explaining the long list of why our heart is in trouble, he goes, but let me give you the hope that you have in Jesus. In verse 20, he says, But that is not the way that you learned Christ. So he's he's writing to the people who go, hey, don't don't walk as the, the Gentiles walk, the way you used to walk. Don't do that because you've learned Christ. So as you've learned Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And so he goes, learn Christ. Now, let me explain something to you real quickly. Some of you in this room, regardless of what you would say about your heart or about your faith, one of the greatest steps that you need to take right now in your life is to learn Jesus. Now, what I'm talking about is I I, I want you to realize my story. Here's my story. My story is I grew up in a faith-based Christian home. My parents attend our body. They are faithful members of our body. I grew up in the body, the church. The challenge with that is this, is that because of the way in which I received the gospel instruction, I thought that I was good to ultimately pray a prayer, asked for repentance, forgiveness, I was going to heaven, and then it gave me the license to sin, Romans 6.1. I could continue to sin because grace always increased. And Paul goes, no, 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 by no means. You don't continue to sin that grace would increase. But that's the way I was raised. I remember being 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, and myriad of moments in my life going, I know I ought not to do this, But because I serve such a faithful God and he's so good to forgive, I'm going to do it anyway. And if you are ever there, whether right now you're 13, 15, 19, 21, whether you're 47, whether you're 77, listen to me. You need to know that you have a darkened, callous, foolish heart leading you to futility. It is not the way that God desires us to live. And that's how I lived. I lived that way until finally I learned Jesus. And I want you to realize, I did not learn Jesus in Sunday school. I didn't learn Jesus because I had a faithful Sunday school teacher that reared me all the years. I didn't learn Jesus because there was this lady that did an incredible felt board you know, uh, deal. You, know, you remember the felt boards? It wasn't the felt board that won me over. Matter of fact, I, w- I was won over Because at the end of the day, I realized that I was a fake, a phony, and a fraud. I was about to marry the the woman of my youth. Um, I was serving in churches, and here's what I knew. I knew that I could not have a logical conversation about Jesus, about who he was. I knew that I'd never read my Bible through. I knew that I was serving in churches in which I had no business serving. I knew that I was leading students, probably more to fun than I was to uh, a future in Christ. And my heart was foolish. It was darkened. It was depraved. And the reason why is because I led a life of duplicity. Morally, I looked fine, but my heart was dead. And so what God does is he reaches in. And you know where it began? It didn't begin because I went to church. It began because I did a great exploration of Jesus. I had to determine whether or not Jesus was real. Is he really who he, who he said he was? And so that process led me to not the basis of a historical figure. Jesus is a historical figure. That's tried. That's proved. He's, he, he is a good teacher. But is he more than a good teacher? It does not lead me to the cross and a crucifixion because a cross and a crucifixion are historical. They did happen. That's not where I was led. I was not led to a resurrection because even though I proclaimed to, to, to uh, think about a resurrection, I couldn't prove a resurrection. Even today, I still can't. Prove the resurrection outside of God's power in my life and the fact that there is an empty tomb, which happens to be something I celebrate on Easter. So, where did I start? I started right here. What I first had to begin is is Jesus real? Yes, that's true, but how do I know that? And so, I began right here with the Bible. I began to discover whether or not this word is accurate. Is it reliable? Is it true? Is it a story of. of of great fables and a handful of things that we could look at and aspire to live through. And I would say, yeah, it's that, but it's way, way, way more. Why? Because it's not fables, it's not fiction, but it's fact. And the reason I came to the conclusion that it's fact is because of the exploration of it. And so this is the greatest tool that a Christian and ultimately a believer has. And I'm not talking about because you can read your two verses tomorrow morning or because you can pick up a Jesus Calling book and you feel better about yourself. What I'm talking about, this is the word of God in which everything we do that pertains to life and godliness is in it. And so that means that I have hope. Why? Because Jesus is indeed who he says he is. It's because at the end of the day, this has stood the test of time, that this is a reliable book. And if it's reliable, and that's where I came to to land, the same way that Lee Strobel did, probably not to the degree or the effect that he did, but Lee Strobel, a great guy, work of the Chicago Tribune, ultimately has written a series, and even there's a movie now based off it called The Case of Christ. If you've not read it, you should pick it up. It's a great read. It lands that this is indeed authoritative. And if it's authoritative, here's what you need to know. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus has always been, always will be. Everything that we know is created, was created by him and for him. He entered into space and time for us, came down to an earth where there were sinful, wretched people. He laid in a manger, lived a perfect life, ultimately died on a sinner's cross. He was innocent, though he was tried six times, they could find no guilt or fault in him. He was silent in all of those trials prophesied about in Isaiah 53. He was a lamb, led silent for his shears. He was slaughtered on our behalf. He ultimately met the legal demands of God. Isaiah said 700 years earlier, 24 26 prophecies come true of Jesus in one 24-hour period. Why does that give me hope about Jesus? Because I believe it's true. And if it is indeed true and it is factual, then guess what? Jesus is reliable. And if Jesus is reliable, then if I put my trust in him because of his death, because of his resurrection, because of all that he is, then guess what? I can have a new life in Christ. And if I have a new life in Christ, then guess what? I don't have to be left to my futile thinking. And if I'm not in my futile thinking and my heart's not darkened, that means I can be made alive. If I'm made alive, then there is an expression living in me that used to not be living in me. And the greatest evidence that Jesus is who he says he is is that I'm still married today. And the reason you need to know that is because my hard-heartedness and the scheming in which I was left to in my own devices would have led me to many women. And yet God is protecting me. That didn't happen because of my natural flesh. I didn't one day get my crap together. One day God reached down and he saved me and he changed me. And he began to renew my heart and my mind. And it began to help me live out the doctrine of the Scripture. Why? Because it's real. and It's reliable. And that's why I give my life to this. I can make better money somewhere else. I give my life to this because I really believe it's true. And I also give my life to it because I'm not pastoring a church in where most people are worried that he just said crap. <laughs> and if that's your biggest problem today, then listen, you have a problem. And it goes back to the things that church people care about, the things that God doesn't care about. What does God care about? That we are his man and woman. And ultimately, he goes, I want to liberate you, and I want you to be set free when you learn Christ. Learn him. And then as we learn Christ, verse 22 says, Now put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. That is corrupt through deceitful desires. Put off the old self. What does that mean to put off the old self? It's liberation. Just as Eisenhower would go into to, uh, Nazi regimes and set free people in concentra- consecrate- concentration camps, he goes, it's the same way. He goes, Christ has come to set you free. Put off the old. So James, the half-brother of Jesus, said this way in James one twenty one. therefore put away. It's the same Greek word phrase there. Same word. Put away. What do we put away? All filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive the meekness that is implanted in the word, which is able to save your souls. So what do we leave? We leave the filthy, lustful living. Hebrews 12.1, uh, the writer of Hebrews writes as an encouragement in chapter 12. As he's speaking right before uh, discipline by God. He says in verse 1, Therefore, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witness. Let us also lay aside the same Greek word there, lay aside. What? Every weight, every sin that we, we cling so closely to. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The idea is, what are we doing? We are being clothed, and if we're being clothed, we have to lay aside the old. So Paul goes, listen, leave the futility of your mind, learn Jesus. Learn Jesus. Not because the guy up there is telling you to learn Jesus and you just learn it from him. Learn Jesus. Study your word and be clothed in righteousness, in compassion, in humility, in meekness, in gentleness, in faith, in, in love, in sincerity, in pure devotion. Put on the things of God. That's what he's saying. And then he says... and. Verse 23, and then be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Now, I don't know about you, but um, that's a can be a little bit of a confusing phrase there. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Um, in some translations, the New American uh, Standard would say it this way, and probably the King James as well, would say, be renewed in the spirit of your mind." So it doesn't make it a plural, but he's talking to a plurality of people. So it goes, be renewed in your minds. So when he's talking about that, the question is, what do you mean by that? And here's what's essential to know. When Jesus comes and he ultimately desires to bring salvation to mankind, whose hearts are darkened, whose minds are futile, you need to know that there's, there's more than just one dilemma in a man, and it's more than just his heart. Ultimately, one of the things that a man wrestles with most is his mind. And so what you need to know, the sanctifying work of God is not, Jesus, will you just come in, forgive me, and live in my heart? I think that's where we kind of missed it, essentially, essentially as the, the doctrine of grace. As at the end of the day, we don't need Jesus to just come in and live in our heart. What we need is Jesus to dwell in our spirit. We need him to do a redeeming, sanctifying work of every fiber, molecule, and being of our life. For some of it, it's a calloused heart, and for others of it, it's a grievous mind. For some of it, it's a foolish and, and, ultimately, a licentious mouth. You got a license to say whatever you want, and we need God to redeem all of it. That's the idea. And Paul goes, "What does it look like to be renewed in Christ totally?" And so Romans 8, Paul writes it this way, For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So uh, we typically, in our mind, are either going to think on things of the flesh or things of God. Peter writes it this way in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Um, therefore, uh, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So he goes, set your minds on the things above, ultimately, prepare them for action. Be sober-minded, be alert, be ready, be equipped. Romans 12, too, a very famous uh, verse in which many of you have probably said or even read this week, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That is by the testing, you may discern what the will of God is, his good, acceptable, and perfect will. The idea here is that you would renew the mind. And so we need to ask God, hey, God, renew my heart, but also God, renew my mind. Do a sanctifying work of everything in me. Because at the end of the day, God, I, I, I want to be blameless and pure for you in all areas. That's what it is. And so the way you need to wonder, do I need a new mind, is simply this. What do you think about? A mind that is depraved and futile thinks about you. It's ignorant and it's blind. But the things that are said above, are it's a mind that thinks about faith-based things, God-focused things, and not worldly things. It's transformed. And so oftentimes I have to catch myself, like, God, help me. Lord, my mind is 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 deceiving me. Lord, help me. Help me to live in purity, faithfulness to you. And then verse uh, last part, verse 24, and he says, and put on the new self, created in the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Put on the new self. Guys, for many of us in this room, we go, I have, I have truly given my life and my heart and my desires to Jesus. He has done a a work of justification in my life, but I'm struggling with sanctification. I need to be clothed in Christ. I need to walk it out. And listen, where do you begin? You begin with Jesus. Learn Jesus. Put off the old, ask God to renew every fiber in you and then be new. Be changed, which means as we put on new, it means we let go of old. It's a sanctifying, redeeming work. I think he says it best in Colossians 1, and I'll close with this because I think it's sufficient. In verses 1 through 10, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, that's any of us who have salvation, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things of earth, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then also you will appear with him in glory. So put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetedness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too formerly or once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. At the end of the day, if we, have, if we have died to our sins in Christ, he goes, then walk in a manner worthy in which you've been called. Allow God to transform every fiber of your being from the head to the toe, from the eyes and the ears and the mouth and the nose, Everything. Allow God to do this work. And I don't know about you, church, but I just am convinced that if we, got, if we got really focused on what's the most important thing to the Lord in our body, which is unity, we were equipped to know our Bibles, we discovered the truth of God's Word and the gifts He gives us, and we went out radically into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, into our schools, into our community, into our county. I can't help but think that God will grow His church. And at the end of the day, we're in the business of not having the largest church, but for God to grow his church. And we ought to be growing numerically and spiritually, because that's what a church that's alive does. But the only way it happens is when we stop living in duplicity, and we ultimately give our lives to the king, and we say, now get us on the path towards redemption, reconciliation, and clothe me the way I should be clothed. And then live in it, and enjoy it, and embrace the order in which he'll give to your life. That's the goal. Love you, church. Let me pray for us. And then we're going to sing a couple of songs in worship. Praising the God who's still doing miracles today. Healing, restoring. God, we love you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your goodness. We thank you for the uh, blessing of being here this morning. God, we pray that you would change our hearts, our minds. Um, our desires. God, from the inside out, restore us, renew us. Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, that you are still doing miracles in this place, that you are taking dead men and making them alive in Christ, that even in this room there can be people healed uh, from a hard heart, from a calloused heart, uh, that their licentiousness, a license to sin could be removed, that God, today you may fall fresh on them and that you may show them the glorious grace and the goodness of your love for us. Help us. We thank you. We we bless you because you're a blessing to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.